If we believe in a particular set of rules, we have no flexibility around that. And then when it doesn't work, we're totally stuck because we're like, man, I'm doing it. I guess maybe it's not working and I have to do the rules harder when we didn't even realize, no, 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 those aren't even the rules at all. You bought into something that's not factual. Welcome, you're on air with Ella, where we share simple strategies and truths from people who are doing something better than we are. Whether it's wellness or fitness and fat loss to just living better and with more energy or changing your mindset to accomplish more in your own life and succeeding however you define it. This is where we share the best of what we're learning from the experts and we're learning more every day. Live better, start now. Hey everyone, you're on air with Ella and today is a real treat for me because one of the best things doing this is that I get to reach out to people who I have admired, who I've followed, who I've read for a long, long time. And then I get to just call them up and have them on the air and chat with them and share them with you. Today is one of those days. I want to introduce you to Dr. John Berardi, who we're going to call JB for the rest of the episode. But JB, I had to get the credentials out there, you know. Thank you. Thank (laughs) you so much. And this is a treat for me, too. Thanks so much for having me on air with you. And for introducing me, for everyone who's not heard of me or whatever, I love the opportunity to spend some time with you today. Yeah, this is going to be great. And a lot of people will know you, JB, because you're the founder of Precision Nutrition. And to have you on the air now is a real, real treat for me. So you guys, Dr. John Berardi is the founder of Precision Nutrition. He's also a writer. He's also a coach. He's also an athlete in his own right. He's a researcher, a speaker, and a professor. So just in case you were modest, I wanted to get all of that out there. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. That makes me sound so wonderful. I know. Isn't it lovely? Not true, almost. (laughs) Tell us your journey. Tell everybody who you are, because I know you started out in life as pre-med, and then you ended up going, I want to say, the PhD route. Is that right? Yeah, that's true. I mean, I was... um... I didn't come at this from like an athletic background. I came at it from being really sick and weak and I was skinny and picked on and I had a asthma puffer and I got allergy <laughs> shots weekly. And and so I didn't really participate in any of that kind of thing. And I, I felt left out a lot. And so when I got to high school, I started researching nutrition and exercise. I got so into it, so into it, you know, and 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 so then I just decided to go all in. I, I say I usually call it go down the rabbit hole. I, I was passionate about it, interested. And so, you know, then I went to university and I was like, how can I learn more about the body? And, you know, I was like a really terrible high school student. But when I got to university, I realized I could pick my own curriculum. I started crushing it because I just took all the classes I was interested in. So I'm like, I'm going to learn about anatomy and physiology and how my body works. And then instead of just learning it theoretically, I'm going to learn how to apply it to building muscles and making my asthma and allergies go away and all these kind of things. And it kind of worked. And so then I realized, oh, I'm taking most of the classes that med students take. So why don't I just go and do med school? And so that was sort of the early expectation. And yeah, I come from an immigrant family. I'm the first person ever have gone to university in in my whole family. You know, for them, any immigrant family, we come from Italy, but Any immigrant family of the last generation knows that your parents want you to be a doctor or a lawyer. You know what I mean? (laughs) You have two options. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. Whether you're Asian, whether you're from the Middle East, whether you're from the Mediterranean, it doesn't matter. You got to go be a doctor or a lawyer. So that was kind of the laid out path as well. 
But I realized on the eve of get, going to med school, I had been accepted to a couple programs and stuff. I just stopped and said, I don't think I'm going to like this very much. I like exercise and I like nutrition. And it feels like once I go deep into med school, like there's very little of that. And anything I learn, I'd be perverting to this other space. So I went and did a master's in exercise science and I did a PhD in exercise and nutritional biochemistry. And because I'm doing this for the love of coaching and body change and health, I started a business while in school. And that business started out being called Science Link, and it made a lot of sense. I was a researcher at the time, a PhD student, and we we're the link between people and science, right? And then that morphed into what we have today, precision nutrition. And what we do today is basically three things we do. The first is we coach people, people who want to lose weight, people who want to get healthy, people who want to improve their blood profile, and a lot of them. I mean, to date, through our coaches, our in-house coaches, We've coached about 50,000 people online and they've lost nearly a million pounds of body weight. So that's part one of what we do. Mm. And we started that early on and people started, professionals started asking, whoa, that's awesome. It's the results you guys produce. Amazing. The number of people you've worked with, unprecedented. How do we do that? Like teach us. So that launched our second arm of our business, which is our certification program. And to date, we've certified about 50,000 professionals in health and fitness. So they might be personal trainers. They might be dietitians who rarely get any curriculum around this. They might be physicians who are health minded. So that's part two of what we do. And then in the last year and a half, we've connected the two. So we had this great online coaching program. We had all these professionals who were learning about our methodology and we didn't have a way to connect them. So we finally came up with that. We released a program called Pro Coach. And basically what it is, is our whole curriculum and coaching platform for clients given to our professionals. The professionals that we've certified are out delivering precision nutrition style coaching mm -hmm. in their communities. So it took us about 10 years to coach 50,000 people. Well, in the last 11 months, our coaches have coached another 50,000 people. So our reach is expanding, you know, our beliefs around how to coach nutrition and how to change your body, which I think are different than the industries in general, uh, are being propagated and getting out to the people who need it. So I'm super proud of that, but th that's really kind of a summary. We do coaching, we teach professionals how to do coaching the right way, and then we give professionals the tools to do it in their community. Yeah. And frankly, as you know, I'm not a fitness professional. I'm not a nutritionist. I'm none of those things. But if I can send anyone interested in those fields your way, then what that means is that there will be so many more informed people out there in coaching roles. So I yeah. have a vested interest in uh, <laughs> sending as many people your way as possible. So those of you who are interested in those tracks, I will share those, of course, with you in the show notes. But just what Precision Nutrition is doing is so much in alignment with what the change I would like to see in the world that as many people as I can funnel your way, the better. But I want to draw from some of this experience that you named because one of the things that you do, and you mentioned this because so much of your work is done online and you have um, really this wide reaching scope. You're not just housed in a gym and working with the people who can physically get to you. What I love about that, JB, is that you've got data points from all over the world. You've got data from different continents. You've got data from different size, shape people. You've got data from different cultures. And to me, this is everything because it's informed your point of view. 
Yeah, totally. It's it's one of the more exciting things. You know, when I graduated from my PhD work, you know, most of the research you do in a research lab are these highly controlled studies, right? So you get 20, 50, maybe you're lucky you get 100 research subjects and they might be members of your community or or mostly they're university students and you do experiments with them. And it sounds really bad, but you collect data. <laughs> Here, and, drink this. Uh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> And that is a certain type of research. It has really great value in designing controls, you know, so we controlled this, 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 and this, and then we introduced this and we saw what happened. That's a great type of experiment. Then there's this other kind of research, which is epidemiological or cohort type studies, where you take large groups of people, 10, 15, 20,000 people, and you just ask them questions and you follow them over time. So you're not controlling any variables. Mm -hmm. You're just looking for relationships. Mm -hmm. Well, both types of studies have their pros and cons. No studies that are in those two domains really address the particular thing that I'm interested in, though, which is where eating well and exercising overlaps with change psychology, you know, how to get people to actually do the stuff they already know how to do in this particular population. I mean, you do these research studies in universities and it's students. You do these cohort studies and it's the general population. But who's ever looking at people who decide to change their body and take the steps to do that? Almost no one. But we had the opportunity to do that, right? We have about 500,000 people all signed up, raised their hand and said, I'm into fitness, nutrition, working out, eating well. So you're like, where are you ever going to find that group of people all coming together in a single community. We can research the exact people that are interested in this stuff. And then when we created our coaching program, we're like, this is so amazing because they're with us for an entire year. Our coaching is 12 month program. So we can collect data on everything, right? So not only how much weight do they lose or how their blood panels change or you know what diet works better for individuals, but we can even look at things like behaviors we even take subsets of our groups and do genetic testing with them, blood profiles and cognitive testing. So psychological testing. And we can look at these cool relationships that no one's ever looked at before at this kind of scale. So I'm geeking out a little bit. You can hear it in my voice, probably um, coming from the research world. But being a coach at heart, this is like the best combination of things for me because I get to actually look at a real coaching environment and I get to do my research nerd stuff. So that we can, what I call it, produce new knowledge in a way that it's really not been able to be produced before. So it's, it's super exciting, obviously. I don't want to go on and on about it, but it's one of the, my favorite things that we get to do. Well, what's great about it is all of these data points, all of these experiences, all of your exposure to different types of people in different cultures and different eating lifestyles has led you to develop and promote the best diet in the world, right, JB? Like the singular one best diet in the world. That's You've got right. the answer for everybody, right? And, <laughs> and it's contained in my book, which, no, I'm just kidding. I don't have a book. And Ellen knows, for those of you who don't know, we have a contrarian opinion on that kind of a thing. You know, some of the most popular articles we've ever published on our site, and for those of you new to what we do, we've published probably 800 free articles over the years. We usually publish one or two a week. And one of the first articles that like I really was angsty about and it took me a while to write, but we called it paleo, vegan, intermittent fasting. What's the best diet? Right. And we published this a few years back 
to date, at that point, it had been the most popular thing we've ever published. And what it was, is like, I guess like a 10,000 foot overview of nutrition. When you look at things from a cultural and historical context, the idea is, let's say uh, we'll take, we'll take two angles here. One, let's say you've been in the health and fitness industry for 30 or 40 years. I've been in it for 25 years. I have some friends who've been in it for 50 years. The interesting thing is that whatever the fad of the day is, right now everyone's talking about keto, for example, the ketogenic diet, mm -hmm. but it doesn't matter. Insert any fad of the day here. Whatever it is, it's been here before. And someone who's been in the industry for 30 years has seen it probably twice before. And someone who's been in the fitness industry for 50 years has seen it probably three or four times before. And that means that all of this fervor and enthusiasm or the next, the new thing come in and come out several times, right? It gives you this kind of perspective where you're like, oh, okay, well, I can chill out about this, right? It also helps you see a different context to it rather than, oh, I need to try this. This is a thing. Someone discovered this new and it's going to be the magic thing for me. It's easy to be like, oh, well, someone actually discovered this new four or five times. And that's just in the last 50 years. You know, when we go back super long historically, we can see some crazy things. So you start to look at nutrition information in that context and you start to see like, hey, maybe we can be a little more relaxed about interpreting what's new and what's important, you know, and when we do that, and then when we look cross-culturally, when we look at people in the Mediterranean and we look at traditional diets and we look at people in Asia, we start to see that the North American perspective, which most of us English speakers are familiar with, is only one and it's limited. So when people are very enthusiastic about their vegan choices, that's cool. I like it. You know, if you found something that works for you and that you're passionate about, that's awesome. But there's a sort of egocentrism that comes with taking that, your personal experience and that of maybe a few trusted friends, and then projecting out and suggesting that that thing is going to be the thing for everyone at every experience or point in their lives. So for example, when they're 20, when they're 30, exactly. when they're 40, when they're 50, when they're 90, so that one thing that worked for you when you were 30 is going to be the thing that works for everyone, men, women, children, at every stage of their lives forever. And that is so myopic. And I also understand why people do it. 100%, you know, <laughs> right? Like this is, and let's spend a moment here because I think this is so important. I totally get why we want to believe that there is a right way. I totally get it. First of all, it's easy. Secondly, it removes so much of the struggle. Thirdly, it removes you of the burden of having to be your own detective, right? Mm -hmm. And of course, of course, I completely understand the human need for a magic bullet. And, and by the way, I raise my hand. I mean, I'm absolutely a part of that culture or a part of that tendency. But if there were a right way, wouldn't we know by now, JB? Like, wouldn't we have established this by now? Don't you think that, you know, we've been around for a while. If there were a singular right way, I feel like we would have gotten there. Yeah, well, it's, it's true. And, you know, like you said, I mean, one, it's simple. Like to believe that there is an absolute best diet is comforting and it's simple. But where in your life is anything that simple? Parenting, work, anything. Nothing is that simple. Everything is nuanced. 
right? There's a lot of if-then statements. If this happens, then this might be the right course of action. If this happens, though, then this might be the right course of action. If you're not a nutrition expert, it's almost impossible to think about nutrition in a nuanced way because you don't know all the if-then statements. And that's fair. You shouldn't have to. And so there's the missing nuance. And that's why I think people are attracted to it. The other thing is, if you were eating a standard American diet, let's say, and then you started following paleo or a Mediterranean diet or vegan or whatever, and it started working, you started feeling better, you're energetic, your body's changing. Why wouldn't you want to shoot, shout that from the roof? Oh, you're instant you know what I mean? evangelist. <laughs> but the, I guess the problem with it is if you don't understand that because it worked for you, that doesn't mean it's going to work for everyone at all stages of their life forever and ever. Amen. What tends to happen is you don't know what part of that thing worked for you, right? So you're like, oh, paleo is really important because we don't eat things that people didn't eat millions of years ago. Well, first of all, that's simply not true. I have some good friends who are archaeologists, and every year we discover that all the things that the paleo diet has historically shunned and said we didn't eat historically we ate historically, you know, we ate mm, wild controversy. Yeah. <laughs> like we're finding the reason why we thought in the beginning of the paleo exploration that cavemen, whatever, didn't eat grains is because grains didn't show up in the records, the fossil records or the records of, you know, cultural experiences. Right. So when you do an archaeological dig, you can only report on what you find and grains don't stick around. But there have been a few discoveries, a few archaeological discoveries that were really anomalous, where let's say, for example, an area that people you know, lived in uh, was flooded and underwater, right? In that kind of situation, there's a different kind of preservation going on. And in places like that, where the water no longer exists, they find things like remnants of certain grains and legumes, the things that were banished from paleo. So the idea that grains and legumes and the elimination of those is important because of our historical ancestry is patently false. It doesn't mean that paleo is bad all of a sudden. It just means that what you thought was working about paleo wasn't the thing. And it's the same with vegan diets and it's the same with intermittent fasting. So what we try to do at Precision Nutrition to really bring this to a practical point is let's go really high level. And look at the world and we say, man, there's some vegans out there who are crushing it. They're doing so well. They're eating well. They're thriving. They're healthy. Not all of them, but lots. And then there's some paleos who are thriving and crushing it and doing well, and, but not all. And then there's people who are doing intermittent fasting and the Mediterranean diet and the new Nordic diet and all these things. So if that's true, if there are people all over the world doing well on what seems like very conflicting eating plans, there must be something in common about these eating plans that we're not thinking about that make them all successful. So we start to look at what's common among them, not what's different. Usually they fight over the macronutrient profiles or the suitability or wholesomeness of certain foods. But what if we didn't look at that at all? Because obviously it can't be true. If I have a paleo person who's lean and healthy right next to a vegan person who's lean and healthy, doesn't the argument that they're having about what's wholesome or right completely break down? Like when the paleo person says, we have these certain teeth that are designed to eat meat, but these things are bad. 
And then the vegan person's like, no, 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 but your meat's really bad. It's the actual things that you just said are bad that are good. Isn't it a weirdly hypocritical exchange? But look at their bodies and their health profiles. They're both doing great. So how can we square the two? Well, we square them by looking at what's common among them. So we've kind of identified a series of things that we think are common among them. For example, whenever anyone decides to start eating healthy and exercising, what they do is they start paying attention, right? They start, maybe it's logging, food logging. I don't think it's necessary. But whatever they do, they've made a commitment. They've started doing it. And now they think about it a lot. Right. They're not unconscious anymore. So just a level of consciousness is what you're saying is one commonality and one of the critical components that's shared across all when someone's successful. That's right. And research is playing this out every single day. Studies are being published that when we pay more attention to what we eat, we automatically, without intentionally changing what we eat, change what we eat. And I often think about like young teenager who gets into strength training, right? One of the first things they do when they start lifting weights is they go to like GNC or supplement store and buy protein powder, usually creatine too, right? So in their minds, they think, oh, this strength training is really working, but they didn't just start strength training. They also started something else that they're not even considering something new. And vice versa, sometimes they'll start the protein and be like, man, this protein is really working. And they're not realizing, well, yeah, but you're also doing strength training, you know? So it's these sort of things that we forget have changed that have changed. So when we pay attention to what we eat and we have practices for that, for example, two of the practices we teach our clients are, uh, first of all, is eat slowly. And so that's a thing we work on. And for a lot of people, it's very challenging. But when we slow down what we eat, or when we slow down our eating times. Uh, so let's say it takes you generally five minutes to finish a meal. We're like, well, what would that look like if it took seven or eight or nine? It's not really about the stopwatch. It's about what happens when you think about eating slowly and you actually start practicing it. You're more attentive and attuned. Now, people call it mindfulness nowadays, and that has its whole baggage with it. I just call it paying attention to your life. Right? Yeah, I mean, and let's acknowledge how annoying this advice is because The people who are like, oh, for the love, like I tuned into this to find out (laughs) what I need to be doing. And you're telling me to slow down and to pay attention. And by the way, that is me. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And so what you would say, I believe is you're exactly the person I'm talking to. That's exactly (laughs) right. Right. Like everybody whose back is up because you're like, wait, you're telling me the number one key here first is to wake up, open our eyes and be conscious about what we you know, just about wanting to pay attention even, and then like slow the heck down and eat consciously. And the people who cringe at that or like almost get annoyed by that are exactly the people, me, 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 Mm -hmm, me, mm -hmm. who need to understand this more than anyone, I think. It's true. And, And it does feel wimpy of a suggestion, but only when we stop there. But when we actually start laying out the progression- it makes sense because the next thing we do is we work on eating until what we call satisfied, not stuffed. Another way we call it is 80% full. This one feels wimpy too, but it's building skills for the next stage of development. Well, and it's hard, JB. Like it's harder than it sounds. Totally, it is. And I don't know that anyone's like, "Ah, I'm not going to do that because they think it's hard. It's because they think it's easy. And then when they try it, they're like, yep. oh, wait, wait, what, what's <laughs> happening here? This is not so easy. Oh, I hate you, John Bird. 
Um, <laughs> and our, our clients, when they come in, these are generally the first two practices we work on. Now we have a year together, right? So we just tell them, relax, it's okay. If this doesn't work for you, we're going to get to some new practices coming up. But the only thing I can liken it to that people usually get is learning a language, learning to play an instrument, learning any new skill. When you are at the beginning, you wish you were more advanced than you are. And you're not. And you have to practice stuff. Like in the beginning of learning to play guitar, I had to do these scales. One, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, over and over and over again. And I didn't want to do them. I just wanted to play Hey Joe, you know, <laughs> but your fingers need to build up calluses to be able to play songs. Mm. And you have to do drills to build calluses on your fingers. You're like, oh, oh, that's a part of playing guitar. You also have to build a central nervous system connection between your brain and your fingers. So they do the things you want. Your brain wants them to when it's time to do them. And if you can't do that, you can't play Hey Joe. And it's the same thing with food and nutrition. If you can't slow down and pay attention to your meal, you can't do anything hard around macronutrients. If you can't stop eating at 80% full when it's time to stop eating at 80% full. I mean, when we work with our muscle gain clients, we ask them to go to 120% full because that's what it requires in that state. But if you can't do these basic skills, then there's no way you can do the harder ones. So we teach you the basic ones and almost no one has ever practiced these things. And practice is the only thing that builds skills. So, and again, this is just one part of what those diets have in common. Generally, when you go hardcore paleo or vegan, you pay attention to everything you eat. And that alone makes a big difference. And again, I hate just being the person who chastens people and wags the finger and be like, well, pay attention to your life. Be more mindful. Well, that doesn't help anyone. How do you be more mindful? Well, here's how. You slow down, first of all. If it takes a watch to do it, that's what you do. And you start playing with sensations. Okay, I'm going to eat to 80% full today. Well, what the heck does 80% full mean? It doesn't matter. We call it satisfied, not stuffed. So the next meal, I want you to eat to stuffed. Feel that. Write down what it feels like if you have to. Next meal, I want you to stop when you're satisfied, not stuffed. And you start to get an internal compass on this. And this is what people talk about when they say eat intuitively or pay attention to your hunger signals. And people tell me all the time, well, that's stupid. Because if I paid attention to my hunger signals, I just eat cheesecake all the time. And you're like, yeah, that's a different signal. <laughs> but you've not practiced hunger signals ever. But we have a system for teaching that. But that's like ground level stuff. You know, once you can do that, then we can start leveling up. But when you can't do that, you're in trouble because you're white knuckling your way the rest of your life to eating healthier without the basic skills that are required to do it. John, I have to think that one of the major commonalities amongst paleo, vegans, vegetarian, pescatarian, Mediterranean, Atkins, I have to think, I have to think that one of the major commonalities is a focus on real food. Yes, absolutely. Totally, absolutely. When you start paying attention and you start following a system, whatever system it is, I mean, rarely are those systems like, hey, this diet's going to be about cookies and sugar. <laughs> you know, rarely. You know, the, the di paleo is about like meat and a certain amount of veg and that kind of thing. Whole foods, generally or minimally processed. Vegan, same, right? People are doing vegan properly are eating plant foods, you know, not animal-free cookies. And if you're intermittently fasting, you're not eating anything for part of the time. But when you are eating, you're eating generally whole foods again. So 
the idea is, you know, you're paying attention to what you're eating and the system is delivering more whole foods, right? And there's a third one, which is generally when you're eating more whole foods and paying attention to what you're eating and trying to be healthy, quote unquote, whatever that means to you, you are eliminating nutrient deficiencies, whether you know it or not. And, you know, we're not in an age where people are sailing across the ocean and not getting enough vitamin C, so they're getting scurvy. But what is happening is we're having subclinical nutritional deficiencies and they're affecting things like our children's ability to pay attention in school, our own ability to be present and focused when we're working, metabolic changes where we find it really difficult to lose weight or or shed body fat. So there's these subclinical things where we're just not getting enough of certain nutrients. We're getting plenty of calories, but not enough nutrients. And so processes aren't working well. And one of my favorite sets of studies in in weirdly dichotomous groups is you take hospital patients, prison inmates, and grade school children, and you give them... You know, the use. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) We don't put them all together, but we give those populations one fish oil capsule and one multivitamin a day. Now, there's nothing magical about fish oil or multivitamins. It's just that in these institutional populations, right? In prisons, you're fed all your meals. When you're inpatient in hospitals, you're fed all your meals. And when you're a child, you eat some of your meals, if not most of your meals and snacks during the day in an institution. And the foods are generally economized, not maximized for nutrition. And so you're deficient in stuff. And then when we give you fish oil and a multivitamin, we change your deficiencies. We eliminate them in many cases. And what tends to happen in all three populations, which is the crazy part, it happens in all three groups. There's a reduced incidence of violence and antisocial behavior and an increase in cognitive test scores and the ability to concentrate. Prison inmates, children, uh, people in inpatient hospital settings. So you're like, okay, cool. So what these things are doing is not magic. They're just giving people nutrients that they're not getting enough of. And when we follow diets, you know, like whole food based diets, and we're paying attention, we tend to eliminate deficiencies. And this is the one that really hooks people on their diet, right? This is how evangelists are born. This is exactly it. You follow paleo or vegan or whatever. And all of a sudden, it's not just like you're losing weight. You feel like you're reborn. You're like, oh, my God. I can think better, you know, uh, when I'm intimate with my partner, that's better. When I'm uh, working, it's better. When I'm working out, I, I have motivation to exercise. There's this whole line of research showing that when you're deficient in omega-3 fatty acids, which come from fit, fish oil, the motivation centers of your brain are maybe not getting enough, we'll call it fuel. So fixing an omega-3 deficiency, motivation increases. So you're like, now these people feel like they're motivated to exercise and they start exercising, which is the next thing that these things have in common. You pay attention to your food. You start trying to be healthy. Then you start eating minimally processed foods. Then you replace nutrient deficiencies and you get motivated. Then you start exercising. And most of these plans, when people get serious about them, actually start, they add some exercise. So now you start to see, like you said, you're building evangelists for a particular system when it's not the rules of the system that are doing it but the overarching rules that all good things do. Let me just feed this back to you and make sure I understand. But I mean, this makes perfect sense. So we all land where we land for whatever reason, and we try that thing on. And if it's better than before, 
then we feel great. And then, of course, like, why wouldn't you want everybody to know about this? Right. And why wouldn't you even maybe condemn every other way since your way was the right way? And so I think everybody gets that because I think they've seen it a mm. hundred thousand times. I think that they've been it. Mm -hmm. And also I think they've been frustrated by it in the sense that I look at people and they're totally vegan and they eat 20 bananas a day. And, you know, if I could be like a fruititarian, I would <laughs> because I just love fruit and vegetables. And if I do that, I gain 12 pounds instantly. Right. And so that's frustrating. How come she can be beautifully lean on, you know, her 20 bananas a day and I eat two bananas and I might as well just tape them to <laughs> me, right? And so then you look at the paleo crossfit -y person and you're like, I'm going to do that because that's working for them. And in this, we get lost. So I think everybody relates to that, John. I think it's so important to point out one more thing here. When you carry a flag, and that's my way of saying, you know, I'm a vegetarian, I'm waving that flag, or I am paleo and I'm waving that flag. When you carry a flag or when you insist on a label for yourself, you don't allow yourself to go through seasons. Mm -hmm. It's true. So yeah, like what's going to work for you when you're 24? Almost never is the thing that's going to work for you when you're 54. It, yes. It's not based on my observation anyway. That's right. And the sad part about it for each person individually, obviously it's an industry problem when everyone's shouting and fighting instead of looking for commonalities. So it's a, it's right. a, it's a social and community problem in that case. But what's sad about it on the individual level is you're right. You'll get to a stage in your life where this will stop working for a whole host of reasons. Some may be physiological. Maybe you've gone through menopause or maybe you've had an injury or maybe something's changed. Maybe you've had cancer and now you're a cancer survivor. Uh, something will change for you and this thing will stop working. And then what? And then the second part is because you ascribed your success to a particular set of rules, you will have no way to figure out what to do next. And you'll always feel guilty and like you're doing it wrong. And I see this so often. And I think about it with exercise, right? I'm a man. And when I was a young man, I worked out a very certain, certain kind of way. I had lots of free time. I worked out every day of the week, multiple hours with my buddies. Well, now I'm happily married. We have four children. I have a business. And I can't work out like that anymore. And what a lot of men do is they get to that stage in their lives and they say, well, I can't work out like I used to. And they don't really externalize this, but it's in their head. And I don't know how to do anything but that. So I guess I'll just be out of shape. And that's the saddest thing. They actually want to change. They just believed in a particular system that was based on certain rules that you can't possibly adhere to for the rest of your life. And then when you get to the rest of your life, you're stuck. You don't know what to do. You don't understand that there are larger principles at play there that you can morph to your current life. And I guess it's a good thing because we have a coaching business. So when people get stuck at that point in their lives, they come see us and we help them through it. But it's also sad because it doesn't have to be like that. If paleo, uh, well, I mean, let's talk about diet again. You know, I have some female friends who have tried intermittent fasting. And intermittent fasting is tricky for women because women are so sensitive to calorie surplus and they're also sensitive to calorie deficits. So when you're eating too little as a man, you just end up getting leaner. When you're eating too little as a woman, you end up ceasing menstruation, you end up having all kinds of hormonal difficulties. And 
oftentimes in the very beginning, you see, it seems like it works really well and then it stops and you go in the opposite direction. Yes, yes, yes. You know, and you're like, <laughs> what the heck? And then what do women do? They're like, all right, all right. I, I think I get it though. I have to intermittently fast harder, you know? And there was this old joke in the industry, paleo harder, right? People would try paleo. <laughs> in the beginning, it would work because they didn't really have the skills to go extreme on it yet. But then it worked a little bit. And then they went extreme as they went down the rabbit hole and then stopped working and then started going the wrong direction. And everyone's advice for them was like, well, you're just messing it up, paleo harder. And the fact of the matter is it's not true at all. What's happening is it stops working. Isn't that the same sin, JB, as eat less, exercise more? It is. It's the same flaw. Totally. I mean, what I don't think people look at is life cycles of things. In the very beginning, when you exercise none and maybe eat too much, eat less and exercise more is very helpful. It really is. But in the middle, you might need a different approach. And then later on, a different approach than that. And if we believe with religious zeal, I guess, in a particular set of rules, we have no flexibility around that. And then when it doesn't work, we're totally stuck because we're like, man, it takes 10 rules to be successful in this. I'm doing it. I guess maybe it's not working and I have to do the 10 rules harder when we didn't even realize, no, 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 those aren't even the rules at all. You bought into something that's not factual. And it starts this whole, I'm so passionate about this. Can you tell yeah, I'm like yelling at you, <laughs> but it, it starts this whole mental cycle where you're like, wait, it works for that person on Instagram and it's not working for me. Therefore I'm broken. Therefore I'm going to self-sabotage or therefore I quit mm -hmm. altogether, or therefore I'm going to go try this one and then this one. And I'm so passionate about this JB because I don't ever want to be a part of that problem. So I talk about things like fasting on the mm. air. I talk about things like intermittent fasting. I talk about things like the fact that I'm largely vegetarian just because I don't like meat, but it's not a life, like it's a pain in the butt, mm. honestly. And so I talk about all of these things, but my main message that I just, if nobody gets anything else out of this is that there is no one solution. Like you have to, have to learn about you and you have to find what works for you. And sorry, that's actually the only answer available to us. It's true, you know, and, and I think there's two things that I like to add to that. And I think it's great that you said it. One is that it's normal. It is normal to try things, a lot of things maybe. Some of them work and some of them not to work. That's normal. It's also normal to find something that works that you're really passionate about and get crazy about it, you know? It's also normal for it to stop working at a certain point and feel lost. All of these things are normal. Well, we've coached between our own coaches and our trained coaches, like 100,000 people now. And I don't say that to brag. It's just we have more experience than anyone else. I know what's normal. And I've seen people, lots and lots of people in their underwear. And I've seen lots and lots of people in their emotional underwear as well. What's happening in their mind space, you know? And all these things are totally normal and you have to know it. You have to know that it's okay and that you're not weird or broken or messed up or anything. And I think then the next part is to your point, find what works for you. It's, it's, it's right. But how do I do it? Yeah. How do I find what works for me? It sounds so good. It's kind of like saying, pay attention to your life. You're like, yeah, yeah. But what are be mindful? Yeah. What, <laughs> but what do I do tomorrow? How do I practice that? And for me, the idea is, Go read our article on what's the best diet and look at the things that actually matter across cultures, across different people. 
and start experimenting with those interventions, right? Can I start paying attention better? Can I just focus on more whole foods? Can I integrate exercise when I can, where I can without going overboard on it? You know, can I look for what things I might be deficient in and start playing around with those? Like, look at the things that actually matter rather than the smoke and mirrors that distract you from the things that actually matter. I guess my point is a lot of things people are fighting about, animals or vegetables, carbs or fats, are simply distractions from the things that actually matter. And like I said, the things that matter are paying attention. Because when you pay attention, you naturally eat less. Eating whole, unprocessed foods, not all the time. Like the other day I was at school, our kids all go to the same school and I was in the playground at pickup. And one of the kids was saying how his child has a birthday coming up and we're big on birthdays at our house. So we go overboard with them. And I'm like, okay, cool. So what's the theme? Like what cake is your little one gonna have and stuff like that? You know, cause we bake these crazy cakes, right? And he's like, we don't eat sugar in our house. And I was like, oh, that'll wear off. <laughs> you know what I mean? I didn't say any of these things, but this is what's occurring to me in my head. Because anyone who says we don't eat any of the most delicious thing on the planet, that's not gonna last very long, <laughs> you know? So when you focus on whole foods, it's not all, that's, that's all you can eat. It's just more of those than the other stuff, right? And when you do these things we talked about, again, that I outlined in that article, that's when you can start doing what I call like guided experimentation. You know, there's a whole trend in self-experimentation and, you know, uh, quantified self. It's a whole movement where you measure everything and be your own science fair project. And I think it's cool, except for how many people are actually trained in science. If you're not, you don't know how to be your own experiment. So we, I, what I like is not self-experimentation, but guided experimentation and the guidance. Okay, that makes a lot of sense, actually. I appreciate the semantics there because you're saying you're not even on your own. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. You know, we have, if you want to start with just reading some articles and using that as your guide, if you want a person to guide you, that's fine too. But I really think self-experimentation for people who are really new, don't know much about the body, don't know how to do proper controls and experiments, uh, leads to what we call magical thinking because you try a bunch of stuff and then you're like, oh, I found the magical formula. And it's great they found it for now. But in 10 or 15 years, when stuff comes up, I don't want you to lose your confidence in your ability to do this. And that's what I see happen so often. Okay, so a couple of things. One is this has brought up so many issues that I want to share with everybody. There will absolutely be a part B to this episode. Cool. And then Dr. John Berardi, please tell me that I can have you back on. Totally. Let's do this again. I mean, I, I know we both have other appointments, but I'd keep going for two more hours if we could. Thank you so much for being willing to come back on. There will be a part B to this that's just me, and then we'll get Dr. John Berardi back on the air. Dr. John Berardi, Mr. JB, thank you so much for your time. And thank you very much for the value that you're creating and for helping create more responsible, informed, conscious leaders out there in the fitness and nutrition world. I really appreciate you. Oh, thank you. Well, first of all, you're welcome. Thank you also for having me. Thank you to everyone who listened for the last hour. I know that Time is a scarce commodity nowadays. So you spending this time with us is really meaningful to me and special. And I thank you for it. All right, my friend, until next time. Okay, everyone, I hope you enjoyed today's show and got something out of it that you can use. If you did and you want to learn more, just go to onairwithella.com where I put up links to all of the good stuff that we talked about today and more information about our guests and all the good stuff that you did not need to write down today because I got you covered. 
Don't forget to join our Facebook page and thanks for those phenomenal reviews in iTunes. Every great review helps and we read every one. Thanks for listening and thanks for inspiring me. You are quite simply awesome.